So it's all here. The story of our time with the bar call. That was President Lyndon Baines Johnson upon the dedication of his presidential library in 1971. Since then, the library has provided a forum to explore not only the presidency of Lyndon Johnson, but the American presidency in general. As we continue this podcast, we'll examine the lives of many of the 45 men who have held the presidency and the impact they've had on our nation and beyond. We'll talk with some of the country's best historians who will look past the legends and shed revealing light on presidential lives and legacies with the Barkoff. I'm Mark Updegrove. And I'm Mark Lawrence. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Our special guest today is Professor Christopher Leahy, a leading expert on the U.S. presidency and American politics in the 18th and 19th centuries. We'll be speaking today about Chris's book, President Without a Party, The Life of John Tyler, which was published by the Louisiana State University Press in 2020. It's the first full-scale biography of America's 10th president published in more than 80 years. Dr. Leahy has appeared on numerous podcasts discussing his work, and he is also author of numerous journal articles and reviews in scholarly publications. Chris, welcome. Thank you so much. I have to say, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. You know, when the subject is the American presidency, our attention goes so quickly, I think, often to Lincoln and George Washington and FDR. And of course, it should be that way. These are the towering giants of the American presidency. But there are so many interesting stories to be told about some of the lesser known figures. And I think uh, John Tyler's indisputably one of them. Talk a little bit to get us rolling about how it was that you came to John Tyler as a biographical subject. Well, actually, the the impetus for it is is something you just said that you know there had been plenty have been plenty of books uh, on Lincoln on FDR on Theodore Roosevelt on Washington Jefferson and I I wanted to do something uh, you know write about a topic that not too many people knew much about um, figuring that if I was able to pull it off and was able to do a good job that somebody might be interested in publishing it. Um, I also became fascinated when I dug into the story a little bit, I became fascinated by the notion and by the reality that here was a president who actually got kicked out of his party. I mean, and that, you know, I just thought, well, what could have made someone uh, be kicked out of their party? I think that that really animated my my approach to the biography and ultimately why I chose the topic. Right. The president without a party. And of course, I want to get into some of the, the party dynamics of the 1840s, 1830s and 1840s in, um, in a few minutes. Um, there have, of course, been a few other studies, other biographies that dive deeply into the life and times of John Tyler. What do you bring to this man that um, we didn't know before? Well, there are two things that I think make this book, make my book uh, stand out from the rest. Uh, one was conscious and one I sort of accidentally fell into as I was doing the research. Uh, first of all, I spend more time uh, detailing and analyzing the relationships that Tyler shared with his first wife and his set of first children. Uh, to my mind, that had been uh, rather superficially dealt with in other books on Tyler uh, Oliver Chitwood, who really wrote the first biography, scholarly biography of John Tyler, published in 1939, had glossed over a lot of this and had really, in my view, failed to note the significance of that first family to his life and his career. And secondly, I thought that uh, looking at Tyler as a president, I came with it, came to the research thinking that he 
had behaved as an ideologue. He was rigid in his states' rights and strict construction ideology. But what I found is that he was able to rub a lot of the uh, hard edges off of that ideology and really made an earnest attempt to adopt portions of both the Democratic ideology and the Whig ideology once he became president. So I think that that has been rather unappreciated or underappreciated uh, in previous studies of John Tyler. Right. You suggested there's a caricature of Tyler, I guess, that has prevailed for a long time and you're bringing new, new subtlety, nuance and detail to, to, to his career. Um, help us for a moment before we dive into the details of his early life to orient ourselves to the United States in the 1830s and early 1840s. What were the big issues that John Tyler, as a member of Congress, and then of course, ultimately as vice president and president, uh, had to confront? What were the big issues that beset his, his administration? Well, in the 1830s, uh, at least for the first six years, Tyler was a US Senator from Virginia and his career basically revolved around all of the major issues that revolved around the presidency of Andrew Jackson. Uh, so uh, topics like uh, Indian removal, uh, nullification, the, the crisis with South Carolina over the tariff, um, the bank war that Andrew Jackson waged once he won re-election in 1832. Uh, these are the issues that really dominated Tyler's senatorial life. Uh, and once he became president in 1841, he was dealing with the effects of the Panic of 1837. So the country went into a steep economic decline, which some historians argue was the first Great Depression uh, of American history. And uh, Martin Van Buren had been the president at the time that, and for not too long, at the time that the Panic started. And there was a brief period of what many people thought would be recovery around 1838, early 1839. And then the country was plunged back into depression again. And Tyler came to office with that really foremost in, in people's minds. Um, he also uh, came to office with the boundary dispute between the United States and Britain over Maine and New Brunswick. Uh, this had been a longstanding diplomatic issue that had been left unresolved since the American Revolution period. So that was pressing in terms of, of foreign affairs. And then the perennial question would be the annexation of Texas. Texas, after it won its independence in 1836, had repeatedly pressed Presidents Jackson and Van Buren for annexation. Uh, eventually, Sam Houston, the president of Texas, gave up uh, but it had become an issue. It was a, a perennial issue in the sense that uh, people thought, well, is Texas ever going to be annexed into the United States? And certainly Tyler made the annexation of Texas the cornerstone of his foreign policy and really the cornerstone of his presidency. Now, over the years, polls of historians have typically given John Tyler pretty low rankings among American presidents. Just last year, there was a CNN poll um, that showed he ranked 39 out of the 44 presidents. I wonder, does he deserve in your mind such low marks or would you urge us to, to take another look? Well, obviously I want you to take another look by reading my book. I think that would be, you know, would be a, a good thing to do. Um, and I, I would hope that the, the book justifies that. But 
In all seriousness, I think uh, the, the one there's one poll that I, I looked at. I can't remember which one it was um, in the last several months. It might have been C-SPAN, where they actually break down by certain topics, uh, the presidential uh, activity and, and you know their, their performance in certain areas. And I was struck by this poll on economic matters that Tyler ranked below Martin Van Buren, mm -hmm. uh, known as Martin Van Ruin during the campaign of 1840 because of his role uh, in perpetuating the Panic of 1837. And Tyler was also below Jimmy Carter. Uh, so I think in, in certain areas, Tyler does deserve a re-examination, and that, that would be one example. I think Tyler uh, did his best to try to bring the country out of the uh, lingering effects of the Panic of 1837. In some ways, he was stymied by party politics, but I think he definitely deserves a higher ranking in, in that area, at least, than some of the others. Is it fair to say that many of his accomplishments lie in the arena of foreign affairs, the Texas issue perhaps um, at the top of the list, but also a couple of other diplomatic agreements that were reached during his presidency? Yeah, I think the, the fact that he was largely constrained by being kicked out of the Whig Party, um, he you know occupied this uh, very distinct world, this nether world of party politics. He was kicked out of the Whig Party, formally drummed out. They actually had a ceremony to drum him out of the party. Um, obviously, the first and only president up to this point, at least, that has been uh, so ignominiously treated. Um, but I think the constraints of party politics, the fact that the Whigs kicked him out, the fact that the Democrats didn't want him either, really made sure, really ensured that he did not have much success in the domestic realm. So that, of course, left the more constitutionally broad area of foreign policy for him to get things done. And I think one of the things that struck me is that Tyler definitely wanted to, to have a legacy. He didn't want to be remembered as the uh, second part of that slogan, Tippecanoe and Tyler too. He didn't want to be remembered solely as the individual who came to the office because of the death of William Henry Harrison. He wanted to make his own legacy and recognize that foreign affairs would be the vehicle for him to do that. Let's dive into John Tyler's life and start in the, the early stages, his origins. He was a man who came from a position of privilege and wealth, um, his father had been close to Thomas Jefferson and had sort of maneuvered in the world of the American Revolution. Uh, John Tyler was um, a man who understood power, who had a lot of firsthand experience with powerful people around him throughout his life. He, you make an interesting assertion in the introduction of your book, you write that Tyler's life is a case study in how the Southern master class developed and how its culture influenced politics. Would you unpack that for us a little bit and uh, tell us how that assertion connects to John Tyler's early life? Yeah, I, I think that assertion actually speaks to a philosophy of writing biography, uh, you know, at the, at the very top. I think, um, you know, writing biography, you want to establish the context or the social world, the political world that someone operated in and assess their typicality or assess how they might have been different from that world, how they might have deviated from that. And I think, you know, Tyler does represent that case study. Uh, he is, uh, of course, animated by the institution of slavery, you know, that dominated his politics, obviously. 
Um, he is uh, animated by his sense of place, Tidewater, Virginia, and the South. Uh, so I think, you know, the, the, the concept of biography, trying to prove whether somebody or trying to see whether somebody is typical is something that I consciously tried to do. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are also ways that you want to see that your subject is atypical. And I think, you know, merely uh, looking at him as president of the United States shows that a little bit. Now, when John Tyler became president in 1841, he was often accused of being of uh, the, the, the label that was was used was sometimes his accidency, right? It was purely by accident that this man had become uh, no less than president of the United States. And of course, he was criticized as a weak president uh, thereafter and really down to this day. Yet, as your book makes clear, he was arguably extremely well qualified and well prepared to be president. What was it that prepared uh, this man for the, the nation's highest office? And, you know, is, is his accidency in some ways uh, a distraction from the very formidable experience that this man had? Yeah, I, I actually think that Tyler was probably arguably as well prepared for the presidency as anybody, uh, probably in the 19th century, probably, um, you know, even more so, I would say, than John Quincy Adams. Uh, Tyler uh, started his political career. Uh, he was a lawyer, first of all. He was classically trained, at, uh, educated at William and Mary. Uh, that was something that that held him in high regard and was almost a prerequisite for a career in law, a career at the bar in Virginia. Um, he always wanted to be a politician. The, the study of law was more or less a vehicle for him to be able to do that. But he held every political office possible. He started out in the Virginia House of Delegates. Uh, he served in the Virginia House of Delegates, the lower house of the legislature, uh, on three separate occasions. He served as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, U.S. Senator, Governor of Virginia, and of course, Vice President. So in terms of the political offices and having a sense of the uh, activities of the office, the limitations of each office. I think he had a very good grasp of that. So I think in terms of his education, in terms of his law career, in terms of his overall political experience, the groundwork was laid for him to become president. He was, you know, he was very much well prepared for that. What could you tell us about the character traits that drove John Tyler to ever hire office. Challenging, no doubt, to recover the inner world of someone so many decades ago, but what sort of man was he uh, as he rose through the ranks? Well, he had a, a single-minded devotion to politics when he was in it, and even when he was not in it. Um, I make the point in the book that when he was at home in between sessions of Congress, he was writing letters to fellow politicians, he was thinking about certain issues, he was framing the way that he was going to attack these issues once he got uh, either to Richmond or to Washington. So I think he had this single-minded devotion to politics, I would say, and have said uh, in other forums that he was addicted to politics. And, you know, on, on one level, you could say, well, that's not really all that significant because a lot of politicians are addicted to politics. They, you know, put their, their family life second. But Tyler was, in my view, was really... Uh, somebody for whom this was a a character trait. It was something that actually drove him. He was very single-minded, almost with blinders on when it came to his first family, his first marriage and the, and the children he had with Letitia Christian, his first wife. 
And I think that ambition and that addiction to politics fueled him to keep you know, going and raising the bar and keep attaining higher office. I think to some extent, too, one of the things that, that Tyler wanted to do was to become a politician of national renown. His father had been a politician and a judge of you know, the state of Virginia. Um, and I think his father consciously pushed him to want to have a career where he became someone who was nationally renowned. And that, more than anything else, drove Tyler to, to make politics his calling. And you know, as we'll see, or you know, as the, the book makes clear, um, often to the detriment of his family. He rose to prominence, of course, in a period dominated by some of the larger-than-life figures of all of American history. Um, let's talk a little bit about John Tyler's relationship with at least a couple of these figures. Andrew Jackson, first of all. Um, what was Tyler's relationship to Jackson, and what role did Jackson or Jacksonianism perhaps play in Tyler's career? Well, Tyler was very skeptical. In fact, probably a little bit afraid of the notion that Andrew Jackson might become president in the run-up to the 1824 election. He regarded Jackson as a military chieftain. He feared that Jackson would become a Caesar, you know, really exaggerated the fears uh, of Jackson based on Jackson's previous military career, obviously, and, and really in many ways exhibited a lack of respect for Jackson as a politician. Uh, when Jackson actually became president, Tyler was a rather lukewarm supporter, as I put it in the book, a, a not so dedicated Jacksonian, uh, like the ideology, the overall ideology, the overall thrust of the Jackson administration. That is until uh, nullification and the bank war uh, intruded on that. Um, and then when Tyler became president, he actually became friendlier with Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson uh, wrote to Tyler commending him for his uh, stance against the Whigs in 1841. And if you know Jackson, you know Clay. Henry Clay was one of Jackson's bitter enemies. So anybody that was going to stick it to Clay uh, was going to be on the good side of Andrew Jackson. And, and Tyler actually sought uh, a little bit of counsel from Jackson with respect to party politics, with respect to the annexation of Texas. So by the time Jackson died in 1845, he and Tyler had, had mended fences, as it were. How about Henry Clay, another major figure uh, with whom John Tyler's life is, is intertwined. Tell us about their relationship and perhaps along the way you could tell us how it was that this man who in some ways seems like a quintessential Democrat actually wound up uh, associated with the Whigs in the 1840s. Yeah, Henry Clay and, and Tyler had a, a rather complicated relationship. Um, they didn't know each other well, when Tyler started his political career, Clay is uh, 13 years his senior, so he's 13 years older than John Tyler. Um, and John Tyler's political career began uh, well after Henry Clay had become Speaker of the House and had made a national name for himself. Uh, there's a, a great letter from 1825 from John Tyler to Henry Clay. And this is right after the so-called corrupt bargain that had cost Jackson, or at least the Jacksonians believed had cost Andrew Jackson the presidency in 1825. And Tyler is writing to Clay and you know, praising him as a politician, praising his integrity, telling him he didn't believe for one moment that there had ever been a corrupt bargain. And it, it, it's striking when you read this letter that you realize 
that Tyler is really trying to cement the connection to Clay. And you also get a sense as a politician that Tyler is trying to stay on the good side of Henry Clay because it might help him politically down the road. And that's another thing about Tyler that gets back to the previous point. He's always thinking in terms of politics, always thinking about uh, things that are going to enhance his career. And when they get to the, the period when Tyler's in the Senate, uh, of course, Henry Clay uh, was the leader of the Whig Party, the new opposition party that developed in the early 1830s. And, and Tyler really left the Democrats because he was appalled that Andrew Jackson had removed the deposits from the Bank of the United States, which was in itself an interesting thing because Tyler constitutionally opposed the National Bank, as you know would become obvious when he becomes president. But he thought it was more unconstitutional to do what Andrew Jackson had done in removing the deposits. So that really nullification, um, Jackson's stance against the South Carolina nullifiers really made Tyler sit and think about whether he wanted to be in the Democratic coalition. Jackson's war on the National Bank after he won re-election in 1832 pushed Tyler over the edge to the Whig Party. So there was a sense of, of principle uh, associated with that. But he also recognized that possibly his political career could continue as a member of the Whig Party. And of course, the, the relationship between Tyler and Clay falls apart completely once Tyler becomes president and opposes Clay's agenda for the Whigs uh, in the early 1840s. So they, they have a complete falling out. Right. And, and talk about, if you would, how it is that John Tyler comes to be the vice presidential candidate alongside William Henry Harrison in 1840. You open your book with that story. Uh, give, us a, give us a short version. <laughs> well, nobody, nobody wanted to be vice president. Nobody wanted that, you know, that nomination. Um, there were several men in the Whig party who turned it down. The Whigs actually met in December of 1839 in their first national political convention. They met um, in Harrisburg and at a, a refurbished church in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Tyler actually uh, made sure that he became a delegate to that convention. And he actually went to the convention as a Clay supporter. Um, so the, the ironies of, of this story abound. Um, so he, he comes to Harrisburg and in effect makes it known just by his presence there that, hey, I, I might be a suitable nominee for vice president. And after other men had turned the position down and you know, turned the opportunity for the nomination down, he became, I guess, almost an, a default candidate for vice president. And as I, I think I end that, that session saying, nobody really thought to ask if his longstanding political principles would impact how he behaved as president, primarily because nobody really gave much thought to Harrison passing away, certainly not one month into his administration. So I want to get into details of the presidency, of course, in just a moment. But let's talk for a, a second about the campaign of 1840. Probably the most famous thing that comes out of that, easily the most famous thing to come out of that, is the slogan, Tippecanoe and, and Tyler too. But I think the, the extent to which that, that, that phrase is still known these many decades later attests to the fact that the 1840 election 
was really a, a, a hard-fought contest in which the parties were really trying to appeal broadly um, through, through quite, for the times at least, assertive election tactics, right? This was a very public uh, election in some ways that, to my reading at least, sounded a little bit like what we would see in the 20th century, even in our own era. Is, is, it, a, is it a stretch or am I onto something in thinking of the 1840 election as perhaps a bit of a watershed that points toward the modern era of American politics? I, I absolutely uh, concur with that. I definitely think that, that there is something to that, uh, something big to that. Um, you have both parties uh, engaged in actual electioneering like you really hadn't seen before, um, you know, previous to this election and really in the, the decades or so after the American Revolution, it was considered unseemly for a nominee of, for president to campaign himself for the office. Harrison uh, had a, a pretty substantial uh, canvas of the country in 1840. Um, Van Buren also, you know, abided by that. And I think to some extent, the Whigs were really playing catch up with what the Democrats had already perfected. Uh, they had nominated someone who would at least nominally be considered a, a war hero, a military hero, um, thus the Tippecanoe moniker. They uh, certainly recognized that it was important to have sectional balance by this time um, Harrison had made his name in Indiana in the military and his Ohio. Uh, Tyler, being a Virginian, brought sectional balance to it. So I think you're right. I think in terms of what we would consider party politics, there is a lot that's recognizable about 1840 in what would come later. And tell us a little bit about the circumstances of John Tyler's sudden ascent to the presidency. What happens to William Henry Harrison? Well, Harrison died uh, one month or a little over one month into office, uh, into his term of office. Um, he had uh, come into office as the oldest president elected up to that point, 68 years old. Um, the standard story is that Harrison gave the longest inaugural address out in you know bad weather without wearing an overcoat. And, you know, I think he, he genuinely, genuinely did get sick with that. But uh, Richard Norton Smith has actually argued that uh, there was something more to it than that, that perhaps uh, the, the water, that there was something uh, bad in the White House uh, in that sense that contributed to his demise. Uh, but he certainly served the shortest term of any president in American history. And Tyler had taken the oath of office uh, the same day that William Henry Harrison took his oath, March 4th, 1841. And then Tyler went home. Tyler went home. He was living in Williamsburg, Virginia at that point. Um, Congress was not in session, so there was no need for him to, to preside over the Senate. Uh, he went home, um, attended to some legal business, and then, of course, was informed on April 4th in the middle of the night, the wee hours of the morning, uh, that Harrison had passed away. So he was then uh, immediately, almost immediately, on his way back to Washington to assume the duties of the presidency. And put us in John Tyler's shoes in that moment when he gets the news that William Henry Harrison has died. What are the options open to him, right? No, no vice president had ever been in this position in American history. What was his thought process and, and what decisions did he make with very long-term consequences about what his uh, duty should be in that situation? Well, 
it's it's obvious there's a, a document from a colleague of his, a political associate in Virginia, that makes it pretty clear that Tyler knew that Harrison was very, very sick, very ill, seriously ill. Um, so I think that he had some time before he got that knock on the door to mentally prepare himself for what would happen and what he would have to do should Harrison, in fact, die. And I think this is all you know, part of his calculation once he arrives in Washington. Um, he goes to Brown's Indian Queen Hotel uh, early on uh, April 6th. He takes the oath of office. He actually believed that constitutionally, once Harrison had passed away, that he automatically became president. But he decides to take the oath of office to solidify uh, his stature as the, the actual president. Uh, his his only option, as he saw it, was to accept the office and to really begin to chart a course for his own administration. He didn't want to be an acting president. He didn't want to act as Henry Clay once suggested to a colleague that he would act as a regency. Um, and a lot of his political enemies, even early on, really regarded him as a usurper, really regarded him as someone who had uh, stretched the Constitution to interpret it in such a way that it provided him with the office and the duties and the responsibilities of the presidency um, when a lot of people thought he didn't deserve them because he hadn't formally been elected as president. But Tyler uh, asserts himself very early on to make sure that there is no doubt that it is his administration from this point on. Um, and in many ways, really uh, establishes himself as a strong chief executive uh, right from the start. You know, very much a, um, you know, on the spot kind of guy, made sure he took charge. And really, there are some significant big names in his cabinet, particularly Daniel Webster. And on the morning that Webster was secretary of state, and on the morning that Tyler arrived in Washington, Webster informed the new president that the way that things had worked with the cabinet meetings under Harrison is that Harrison was basically just first among equals, that there was a, almost a committee of the cabinet. And Tyler cut him right off. Uh, Tyler said, I will accept your resignations to all of them um, if you do not accept the fact that I am president of the United States, that this is my administration. I mean, to make it mine. And he took steps in that first several hours to make sure that he did that. Did that sense that he was at some level illegitimate hamper him across his presidency, or was he able to put that th that set of doubts behind him and 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 move on uh, in a fully presidential role? Well, it certainly did hamper him with some individuals. Um, John Quincy Adams never got around the fact, never got over the fact that Harrison had died. Um, and in his diary, there, there are great diary entries from John Quincy Adams where he fulminates against John Tyler. Um, Henry Clay regarded Tyler in some ways as a usurper. So there were significant important elements of Washington politics that never really uh, accorded Tyler the respect that he felt that constitutionally he deserved. Tyler was also a little bit touchy on the subject. Uh, he would actually return mail. He would send mail back that he got that was addressed to the acting President Tyler or Vice President Tyler. He would refuse to open it. You know, he, he bristled at that. He, he could be a little bit touchy at times. Um, and that was certainly one thing that he bristled at when, when people mentioned 
the fact that he was his accident scene. I think when Henry Clay started to use that terminology to define him, he knew it would get under Tyler's skin, and that was the exact purpose for doing it. I love that image of the president returning the mail that was incorrectly addressed. Um, let's talk about Tyler's performance as as president. Um, a dominant issue, as you've already mentioned, that really runs through so many other more specific foreign policy and domestic issues was slavery. Tell us a bit about Tyler's fundamental attitudes on the question of slavery and particularly how his ideas might have evolved across his career. Well, Tyler uh, believed, like his father before him, that slavery had been fastened on America by the British. So there's an evasiveness, there's a sense of shifting responsibility, um, much like Jefferson had done. And you mentioned early on tonight that uh, Jefferson had been a political idol of John Tyler, and, and that's certainly true. Uh, Tyler generally followed uh, what was called the necessary evil defense of slavery. And this is very Jeffersonian and Madisonian as well. Um, perhaps the best way to, to get at that is to look at the two ways to defend slavery once abolitionism began. Okay, so in the 1830s, the abolitionist movement becomes really a, a force to be reckoned with. Um, so Tyler's position was that slavery, he would like to see it go away. He could never define any real way, any concrete way to do that, to make it go away. But he believed that only the South could determine that for itself. And specifically, Virginia as a state could determine whether slavery went away uh, by itself. And they would not, he would not tolerate any what Lyon Tyler called any officious interference from without on the institution of slavery. The, the other side of the defense of slavery, particularly in the 1830s, and this is something that's more connected to theorists like George Fitzhugh or politicians like John C. Calhoun, something called the positive good uh, defense of slavery, the pro-slavery argument. And the pro-slavery argument in a nutshell uh, made the case that slavery was actually an uplifting institution, that you could defend it not as a necessary evil. And, and I make clear to my class classes that both of those words matter in the defense of slavery, necessary and evil really reflected what, what Tyler thought. Um, but they regarded, men like Calhoun regarded slavery as a positive good, that it, that it was a beneficial institution for both uh, the enslaved and for the slaveholders, for the planters of the South. Tyler, I, I write in the book that Tyler could play at the edges of the pro-slavery argument, but usually only in a political sense. And what I mean by that is that most of the time, Tyler at least paid lip service to the necessary evil defense that we'd like to get rid of it. We don't know how. We recognize that it would uh, undermine the economic fortunes, not only of myself, but of the entire class, the planner class. But when, when politics demanded it, he could at least tacitly support some of the ideas of the pro-slavery argument. Perhaps this is best exemplified um, by the concept of uh, diffusion, uh, the concept of diffusion that if you diffuse slavery over a large enough uh, portion of territory, that it would eventually die out. And when the annexation of Texas becomes a significant issue, uh, John Tyler 
again, at least tacitly allows for literature to be published that leans more towards the side of the pro-slavery argument than the necessary evil argument. But he's doing this largely for political reasons. What is it that drives John Tyler to a position of such strong advocacy for the annexation of Texas? What are the various factors that, are, that weigh in his decisions when he thinks about uh, the state that would ultimately uh, come into the Union under, the, under his watch in the, in the waning hours? Well, the, the standard interpretation at the time was that Tyler was motivated by a desire to bring more slave states into the Union. And certainly that, you know, that concern was there. Um, but I think looking at Texas annexation solely in those terms does a disservice to the overall aspect of his life that I mentioned earlier, which was ambition and a desire to create a, create a legacy. Tyler very quickly, uh, late in 1841, identified the annexation of Texas as a signature issue that could not only give him a legacy, but also perhaps get him elected in his own right in 1844. And he spends an awful lot of time during his term in office trying to figure out a way to make sure he succeeds himself in 1844. And, you know, looking back on it and looking at the machinations that he underwent, you realize that you know, it was a fool's errand in many ways, but the annexation of Texas was a way for him to burnish his legacy, perhaps get elected to president in his own right, and maybe even only third as a way to add more slave states to the Union. And the way in which Texas is ultimately annexed, of course, was criticized at the time and has been criticized ever since as undemocratic, perhaps unconstitutional. Is that criticism fair, would you say? Well, John Quincy Adams was one of the ones leveling the charge that it was was unconstitutional and, and did so um, you know, very stridently. Um, however, I, I think the joint resolution, he Tyler accomplished the annexation through a joint resolution of Congress, a treaty that his uh, after a, a series of secretaries of state, uh, John C. Calhoun eventually became secretary of state under Tyler, which I argue in the book was a, a baffling decision and was a big mistake. Um, but Calhoun had tried to get a treaty through the Senate and was unable to do so. So Tyler resorted to, I guess you could say, a somewhat constitutionally suspect joint resolution of Congress. But Article 4, Section 3 uh, allows for Congress to admit new states. And Tyler used that as the basis for the constitutionality, at least in his view, the constitutionality of the joint resolution to bring Texas into the union. And, and I think that most of the opposition to the joint resolution was from political opponents, some of whom had personal animus directed against Tyler, like a John Quincy Adams, some of whom feared that there might be four slave states carved out of Texas. So there were political ramifications, potential political ramifications. Uh, but I think I think if you, you know, if you read the Constitution, I think looking at Article 4, Section 3, you can make the case that Tyler acted within the confines of the Constitution. Let's uh, shift gears for a moment and talk about John Tyler's family life, which, uh, as was mentioned earlier, is an absolutely fascinating subject. Um, tell us about his two families and a bit about his two wives. Well, um, 
I guess I'll, I'll speak to the, the courtship of, of both women. Um, the courtship of Letitia Christian, uh, whose family occupied an even more prominent place in Tidewater, Virginia than the Tylers did. Um, they, they went back further uh, in terms of when they came to the Old Dominion, uh, further than the Tyler family. Um, his courtship of Letitia Christian was very formal, uh, stilted even, um, somewhat romantic, but more uh, along the lines of Tyler, you know, making sure that he adhered to convention in his pursuit of Letitia Christian. I think there's a, a political aspect to it as well. He recognized that marrying into the Christian family would help him politically as he began his political career. Uh, he got married on his 23rd birthday, March 29th, 1813. Um, and the, the way that he treated uh, Letitia was, again, very formal, uh, very much tied to convention, very decorous. Um, contrast that later with his courtship of Julia Gardner, and he essentially throws all uh, sense of propriety to the wind. Um, at one point, uh, he has invited Julia and her family to the White House, and they, they stay after a, an event that they have. And John Tyler ends up chasing Julia Gardner down the steps of the White House around the table and, you know, really, in many ways, frolicking in a sense for his uh, his courtship for Julia Gardner. So he he's able, I think, to exhibit a side of himself that he did not feel like he could exhibit and probably didn't even have when he was a younger man. His first family, uh, I think, suffered a great deal. Uh, certainly Letitia uh, did not like him being a politician, did not like him being gone in Washington for several months of every year. She waited rather impatiently for him to come home. Uh, so the marriage certainly suffered. Um, the relationships that he had with his children certainly suffered. Um, he did have a, a good relationship with his eldest daughter, Mary, uh, who ultimately became a caretaker of her mother. Letitia uh, was ill a lot of the time. She suffered from at least two strokes uh, before she passed away uh, in 1842, September of 1842. And one of the things I think is significant about Tyler's relationship with Mary, his eldest daughter, is that without Mary acting as a caretaker for her mother, and really acting as a surrogate caretaker for John Tyler, he never would have been able to have a national political career. So there's a, a sense that his family is aiding him in his political career, but they're also suffering by the same token because he's gone so long. And then even when he's home, he's focused on politics. Let me wrap up with um, a, a couple of questions about John Tyler's career after he leaves the presidency. He lived for some time, down to 1862. Um, he was a witness to, and to some extent, a participant in the events that lead to the Civil War. Um, it is sometimes claimed of John Tyler that he was a traitor. In fact, you use that word in, in your book because of his support for the Confederacy and his, even his willingness to participate in the uh, Confederate legislature. Um, Talk a little bit, if you would, about the use of that term traitor in connection with John Tyler. Is that a fair way to label him? Um, what, do you, what, what do you feel when you, when you hear people make that claim to this day? Well, that was certainly what the, the prevailing view was at the time. 
um, when Tyler died, um, virtually no mention was made of it in northern newspapers. President Lincoln did not order uh, flags to fly at half mast. You know, there was no real recognition of it precisely because the prevailing viewpoint was that he had betrayed his country by allying himself and becoming part of the Confederate government. Um, and certainly, I think that's been what, what most of the prevailing historiography has argued, that he was a traitor president. He did, in effect, renounce his citizenship and renounce the oath of office that he had taken uh, that day on April 6, 1841. Um, so I think a case can be made that the, the terminology, that the word is accurate, at least to a point. But I think uh, looking at it solely in terms of his legacy is a mistake. I think there's another way to look at it, and that is what his alliance with the Confederacy and what becoming a member of the Confederate Congress. He died before he could actually serve, but he stood for election, was elected to the Confederate Congress. Um, and the fact that he did that really left his second family in a bad position. Uh, Julia, his second wife, uh, suffered immensely because of that, because of the notion of her husband being a traitor president. Um, his second family, I think uh, the, the children, particularly the males, grew up with this stigma attached to them. Um, the two oldest boys that, that Tyler had with uh, Julia um, really, in many ways, came out fighting literally uh, in the Civil War and, and as a way to defend their father's memory. So I think there's there are two different ways or two different aspects of this question about being a traitor. One was the political that it did tarnish, and I, I think rightly so, tarnished his legacy as an American president, but also it tarnished the legacy of his family that he didn't get to see because he passed away and left his wife, his second wife and children to pick up the pieces of what that, that legacy and what that tarnishing of that legacy really meant. Chris, finally, the... Antebellum era seems so long ago uh, in some ways, and yet in others, many of the issues that we've spent some time today talking about are still alive in American politics to this day. Are there any particular legacies or even lessons from John Tyler's life and career that you would suggest are useful for us to pay attention to in 2022? Well, I think in terms of, of today's politics, in terms of the, the two-party system, I think what, what Tyler's presidency demonstrates is the vitality of our two-party system. And what I mean by that is that when Tyler tried to establish a Tyler party, uh, the way he did this was through the use of patronage to try to place key Tyler supporters in positions of patronage throughout the country that would hopefully allow him to build a base for 1844. And what he found, first of all, is that the push for patronage was a decidedly poor way to go about doing it. But he also learned the lesson that even in the 1840s, third parties really had very little chance of success. And I think the, the vitality of our two-party system today and, and really the way it's been um, ever since the end of the Civil War uh, really demonstrates that third parties, which are usually single-issue parties anyway, have traditionally, with a couple of exceptions, have been single-issue parties, really stand no chance. They stand no chance in terms of the, the base of support. They're not able to build broad-based coalitions. They're not able to raise funds to the extent that the, the two parties can do. 
Um, so I think John Tyler's experience as chief executive experience as president really relates well to this concept of, of two-party politics here today. And, you know, it's interesting, one of the things that uh, Robert Seeger argued in his dual biography of John Tyler and Julia Gardner Tyler was that Tyler's pursuit of a third party was not genuine, that he did not see it as a vehicle for getting elected in his own right. He just wanted his issues to be there, particularly the annexation of Texas. So, you know, there's been a historiographical dispute, I guess, between me and Seeger. And I, um, you know, would think I would win since Seeger is <laughs> no longer with us. Um, that I actually argue that he intended, definitely intended for this to serve as a way for him to get elected in his own right. Um, but again, he found out that the, the two-party system virtually precluded any of this from happening. Professor Christopher Leahy, thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. And congratulations on your wonderful book, President Without a Party, The Life of John Tyler. Chris, it's a pleasure. Thank you. My thanks to our sponsors, the Moody Foundation and St. David's Healthcare, and as always to you for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Mark Lawrence. See you next time.